This morning as we approach God's word, uh, Logan and I were so privileged to lead you through the teaching of Nehemiah. And in teaching through Nehemiah at the end of last year, one of the things that God had taught his people was the importance of recognizing the boundaries that he's given them to live within. That the, the walls of Jerusalem were built for the purpose of identifying a people who would represent God to a world that did not know who God was or is. And so those walls were not meant to separate them from the people who needed to know God, but to identify them so that those who were searching for God could find God through the very people God had called, meaning the Israelites. And so as we get into the Ten Commandments this morning, we are again dealing with walls. We're dealing with ways in which people who fear God identify themselves, particularly those who come to know the one true God. As we have discovered in the first of the Ten Commandments, what we discover is that humanity as a whole, you and I, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, are people who do not know who God is. We do not know him or seek for him or long for him. In fact, the scriptures declare that, that all of us have gone astray. We, we seek our own way. We, we seek our own imaginations of who God is. And so as we get into this commandment today, we're going to be reading from verses chapter, chapter 20 of Exodus, verses 3 through 6. Uh, actually, verses 1 through 6. And in reading that, this is uh, the part of the scripture that we'll be dealing with this morning. And so I invite you, if you would, would you stand with me as we pay attention, draw our attention to the word of God? And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to the thousands, thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God. You may be seated. When you and I begin to think about this commandment, this second commandment, we have to remember what we've learned in the first, and that is that when God was giving these commandments, he had delivered the children of Israel from a land that was uh, filled with a, a religion of many gods. Polytheism was the title of it, uh, a place where many... Many gods were worshipped by the Egyptians. And so they were, they were unique and they, you know, they were beyond the scope of any other culture as far as their worship of many gods. And so these, these Egyptians chose to worship what basically was what God created. They took what God created in the world and began to form, form or fashion gods out of them. And they began to bow down and worship them believing them to be gods when they aren't gods. In fact, one of the things the first commandment teaches us is that there is only one true God, 
And that one true God is not something that can be uh, contained in the creation. That we can't find God in the rocks and the trees. That God doesn't live in those places. That he is a spirit, eternal, almighty, all-knowing. And so as we look in the second commandment, though it's not in our text this morning, a better rendering of idols is that we are not to make any graven images of God. That we are not to make any graven images of God. Well, why is that? Well, the, the gods of the Egyptians were graven. They were formed by hands. And though the Egyptians did not believe that their gods lived within the statutes they worshipped, they held those statues as symbols of their gods on earth. And when God says you shall not make any graven image, he's talking about we are not to make any image fashioned by human hands and say that represents our God. Now immediately when you come into this place we call a meeting house. Some of you call it a sanctuary. That's totally inappropriate for Reformed theology. Why? Because the church is made up of people who believe in Christ, not a building. And so to call the church a building is really a misnomer. It's almost a dumbing down of who God created us to be as his people. And so in light of that, when you come into this building and we begin to worship, you will not see stained glass windows. You will not see images. You will not even see a cross except for one that is on the baptismal font to my left. That was put there later by another pastor. What, and I've had people come and say, you know, Robert, I'll, I'll pay for a beautiful cross to hang above your head where the picture that you now see of the print. I, I'll, I'll be glad to donate one of the most beautiful crosses if you'll just put that in the, in the, sanctu in the sanctuary, no, in the meeting house. And I have told them, I said, I don't have any authority, thank God, to make that decision. Only the session could do that. But why isn't there one? It's because when this particular building was built, the architecture was to represent the theology of that day, which was all the way back in 1863 before the Civil War, that we do not make images of God. Therefore, even the stained glass was not included in this building for fear that we would violate the Second Commandment. Now, here's the real question. What is it that God is commanding us in the second commandment. Well, if you grew up in the Catholic faith, in the Roman Catholic faith or in the Lutheran faith, you're probably a little puzzled that we would call the second commandment graven images or you shall not make idols because you were raised in understanding that this is part of the first commandment. That actually the first commandment in that particular expression of Christian faith extends from verse three to verse six where we are not to have any other gods and we're not to make idols. And yet, when you go through the rest of those Ten Commandments as taught by those two different expressions of Christian faith, you'll see that they divide the commandments differently. Then why don't we? Because we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. There is a reason. And it's not, it's not about being right and wrong. It's about being true to the word of God. And so when you and I read these verses, verses 3 through 6, we do not see a single commandment as we study them. The first deals with the worship of the right God, the one true God. 
as opposed to another God or a God created by the images or imaginations of human minds. And then the second doesn't just deal with the worship of the true God, but it deals with the worship of the true God in the right way. In the right way. Well, who's right in how they worship God? Well, it's not for the church to determine that. It is for God. God determines how he is to be worshipped. He is commanded in this second commandment how we are to approach him and worship him. And so in light of that, in this second commandment, there are four parts that begin to explain to us why it is that God has commanded this for us. The first is the rule that he gives. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. That's pretty much inclusive, wouldn't you say? If you look up, if you look around, if you look down, there is nothing to be used to represent God in this world as far as an image. Why does God do that? Well, God specifically says, I do it because I am the Lord your God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am the one who fashioned and formed all that you see. And therefore, because I am the one true God who is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth, to fashion an image to represent me would be such an insult to the one true God. When you and I begin to think of this commandment and you look at the explanation given in the larger catechism of our church as we ex seek to express and teach one another what it is that we believe, the second commandment requires us to receive respectfully perform and completely and purely in all regulations of religion and worship that God has established in his word. What are those things? Well, these include prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. I can't tell you how ministers are now being invited to pray in the public square, whether city council meetings or in places of political discourse, and they are being asked to pray with the exception of not closing their prayer, not using the name of Christ, and to do so is a violation of the second commandment. Why? Because we have no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved the one true God who has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And so when we think of the right ways to worship, it includes prayers and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, the preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration properly of the sacraments to be received, church government and discipline and the order of the church, the administration of the upkeep of the church. Now, I'm not talking about a building here. I'm talking about a people. It includes religious fasting, swearing by God's name and making vows to him so that we understand that when we give a word, it is a word that we cannot turn back on because we give it in the name of the Christ that we serve so that our word must be true and found and pure to others who not only hear it but receive it. It also includes any... Uh, it also includes any, any disapproving, denouncing, or opposing of false worship and doing our best in accordance with our position and calling to emulate and emulate true worship in, 
and to resist all forms of idolatry. Well, why does the catechism go to all this trouble to explain all this? Because, my friends, you and I, you and I are not prone to keeping the second commandment. It is for that reason that we have been given this whole commandment. And it is this. It says most clearly in it that God tells us that he is a jealous God. He is a God who longs for what is his. He will not allow others to possess what belongs to the Lord Almighty. And so when the Lord says, you shall not make for yourselves an image of any form in heaven above or earth beneath or the waters under the earth, the reason for that is that I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. It is a jealousy that seeks to protect what is his. It is not allowing anyone to take from his hand what he has created or the glory that he is due. It is much akin to a husband who sees a wife that he has pursued and has gotten permission to marry, suddenly becoming aware that someone else is making the hairy eyeball across the room at her, and he becomes incensed. That actually happened, by the way, in a wedding. It was in Texas, in Dallas, one of the larger Presbyterian churches, a woman was coming down the aisle, and as she was coming down the aisle, the groom, as he was waiting for her, as he saw her and her train descending the, uh, descending the aisle to come to the front of the church, suddenly realized that he was not, she was not looking at him. And so as he saw her coming and realized he, that her gaze was not upon him, but next to him, he looked back over his shoulder and saw the best man doing this to the bride. Can you see that? It's called the hairy eyeball. What's happening? The best man is trying to woo the bride before she's married. When God looks at you and he sees you seeking to make images of him that violate who he is, he only sees someone with a hairy eyeball trying to woo your affections from the one who created and made you for himself. This is the reason God gives you this commandment. He desperately loves you. He will not share his affections, your affections, with anything that you create as a God. But God not only wants and loves you, He wants you to love Him. And there is the sting of this commandment that reveals who we really are. Do you love God? Or are you prone to allow other things to displace Him? in your heart. You see, there is the warning. The warning. We have the, re the rule, the reason, the warning. What warning does God give? He gives the warning in this way. He says, most pointedly, he punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And when you read those words, you begin to go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why would God punish children for their parents' sins? Well, the word there, sin, in the Hebrew, sometimes translated iniquity, refers to a twisting. 
I don't know if you know the candy twisters. Do you know what a candy a twister is? It's a long piece of licorice that they, they extrude, and as it comes out, they twist it to make it more palatable. Well, that's a one way of twisting. The twisting that is being used here is a twisting in the sense of making what is right wrong and what is wrong right. And when God says that he punishes the, the children for the sins of the parents, he says he's punishing what is being twisted not just in parents, but in children. And it is an idolatry and a kind of perversion that, that has an overwhelming systemic power in those not only who are parents, but also their children as well. And you say, well, Robert, that seems to be so unfair. Why would the children be punished for their parents' sins? You, you don't understand. The children are sinners too. I don't know if you've ever had children, but for those of us who have, it doesn't take long to realize that you don't have to teach your children how to do bad things. You don't have to teach your children how to hit others, not share their toys, cry when they don't get their way. But you do have to teach your children how to love, respect, and care. For those beyond their own skin. You see, the real problem that we have with the passage is we think children are innocent. They're not. Children are under the power of sin. They need a Savior too. And God gives the warning that he, he will not allow any sin to go unpunished, even the sin of making images of him. Why? Why would God be so pointed? Because it deals with a matter of hate. You see, for us to make an image of God and worship and bow down to it, we are telling God, God, we don't worship and love you really. We hate you. We want you to be in our image. You know, it may be in your mind's eye, you say, well, Robert, well, wait a minute. It's, it seems really kind of worshipful to have idols. In some expressions of the Christian faith, there have been idols to saints, idols to the Virgin Mary, idols, idols, idols. When Cindy and I and Anne were in, in Italy, we were overwhelmed by the um, immense numbers of idols that are given and how people would even pray before these idols. When the reformers saw this kind of practice, they, they recognized how dangerous it could be. Why? Because though the people who were praying would not have tribute that they were praying to an idol, they were praying to a person, it oftentimes led to an idolatrous view of who God is. Well, what do I mean idolatrous view? It was a way of manipulating God You know, perhaps the second commandment really is based upon the universal truth that children learn how to worship God from their families. But the truth is God holds families responsible for their conduct. 
It's one of the reasons why we have the catechism. It was for parents to teach their children the truth of who God is. And when those families don't do that, God not only holds individuals responsible for that, he holds what's called the, solidar uh, the principle of covenant solidarity, where he holds whole peoples accountable for their sins when they violate this commandment. And yet, as harsh as the warning is, many people never get any further without hearing the tremendous promise that God gives. He gives a rule that we should not make graven images. He gives the reason because God is jealous to be worshipped as the one true God. He gives a warning to those who hate him and refuse to abide by this law or commandment. Fourthly and finally, God tells us that there is a promise and the promise is just so much more powerful than the warning because it is a blessing that doesn't last three or four generations. It is for thousands of those who love him and serve him. What is it but showing love to the thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments? This promise that God has given goes all the way back to the prophet or to the, to the person of Abraham where he, God tells him, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me, you, and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. What is it saying? It's saying that God is offering hope because he knows that you and I will be prone to idolatry. And yet all he says to us is we have to do, all we have to do is to respond to God who loves us by loving him in the way that pleases him in return. But here's the real problem. Do we really love God? Do we? I think it's interesting when I was reading, Joe Mitchell led the class in our church of the counterfeit gods by Tim Keller. And Tim, in his book, writes about the fact that humans have a heart that's a perpetual idol factory. And I thought, boy, he is so smart. Tim Keller is just so smart. I wish I was as smart as Tim Keller. Then I found out that actually John Calvin wrote that. <laughs> it was in his institutes, and that's where Tim found it. John Calvin wrote, he said, Our hearts are perpetual factories for idols. How did he know that? Because he lived with it as a reformer. He saw it day by day. He saw it in the Christians who would go and bow before statues to pray how what they were doing was actually not elevating their, their ideas of God, but de-evolving their worship of God. And so rather than worshiping the true God in spirit and truth, one of the things Calvin saw is that we shape, we reshape and remake God until he is safely under my control. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, we make idols whenever we worship an image rather than listening to the word of God. It worries me in our days that more than anything else, the thing that has influence in our culture, the thing that overwhelmingly people turn to for truth is this. 
I was, I was surprised. There was a, a Duke basketball player who was notorious last year for tripping people. He was a dirty basketball player. And I was reading through one day on the web about how this person was being interviewed and he was talking about how he was a really good, wonderful person and that someone had taught him how to play basketball and that, that his intention in doing all this tripping was actually to elevate the character of those who he played against. And so when my daughter came home from college, I said to her, I said, you would not believe what I just read about this guy. He is so full of himself. He believes he's so righteous. He's so right in how he plays basketball. And Ann said, where did you read this, Dad? And I said, I read it on, on, on the web. And she said, where? And I said, I think it was called The Onion. And she rolled her eyes at me and said, Dad... The Onion is a satirical magazine. They make jokes of people. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I had believed everything I read on my webpage. Some of, you, some of you think you can have a religion where you can Google it. Not according to God. You must listen to his word. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can't use your phone to look at your Bible. But when what you read on the Internet becomes more important than what you read from the Bible, or you spend more time looking at your cell phone, there's a danger there. We also make idols whenever we turn God into something we can manipulate. What do you mean? Well, people like to say, well, as long as we approach God in the right way, we'll get what we want. Or we think that God is saying he will not, he will not, over, he'll just overlook certain things that we do. All of those kinds of thinkings where we come to God and we think that we can get from God something if we do something. All of that is idolatry. And the most amazing thing is that we can also violate God's word when we tend to emphasize things about God that we like and minimize the rest. What do you mean? Well, when we put such an important priority on knowing the Bible, but we don't love God. Or we think that God is more concerned with private morality than with social justice. Or, or we think that in our legalistic hearts that we can be motivated uh, to do out of a sense of duty something for God and expect him to have deep gratitude to us for our goodness. Or when we, when we truly do things and expect that God would somehow think that we're righteous or good people and we deserve his grace. Well, the real question then comes, how then do we worship God in the right way? How do we worship God in the right way? Here's the glory of the commandment. That the commandment reveals to us that in our sinful state, we need to be remade into the image of God. 
That's what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve were first created. What did God say? Let us make man in our own image and our likeness. And ever since the fall, you and I have been in the business of making God in our image. A twisting of the original tent that God made you for. How, how is this possible? It is impossible for you. You cannot remake anything. You must be remade. You must be born of God. You must repent, turn away from the idea that you can worship God in whatever manner you desire and come to Christ. What does God mean by this? He means this, that the only way that you can truly love God is by learning how to love him in receiving Christ. The only way we can keep this commandment is when God moves in your or my heart to bring us into a saving relationship with Christ where Christ becomes the most important thing. No, no, excuse me. The most important person in your life. May I be so bold? Are you here because you think that by being in church, God owes you something? Or has your heart been changed to see the truth that you deserve God's punishment and wrath? That you have insulted him, hated him, in the way that you have approached him outside of Jesus Christ. You have tried to manipulate God into being the God you want him to be instead of bowing down and saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Give me a heart fit to love you. Only he can do it. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, as we bow before you, it would be such, such a horrendous hate of you. It would be an act of outright rebellion to think that we deserve anything from your hand. We have oftentimes play the game of, of comparative Christianity where we measure our sins by how few we have in comparison to others. And yet your law begins to teach us that Christianity is not about what we're able to accomplish in Jesus' name in the suit, pursuit of righteousness. 
that is coming to the one who is able to give us a heart to live out what we were created to be, a heart that truly loves God, the one true God, and worships you in spirit and truth. Forgive us, O oh Father, when we have allowed music or litany or personality to excuse our idolatry of making you into the God we would like you to be. And bless us, O oh God, as we endeavor to seek to love you and keep your commandments. We ask and we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the people of God said together,